We're going to get started. We've been on a series since this summer on um, biblical history, um, trying to encourage biblical literacy, um, get people excited about um, the Bible. <laughs> um, and just there's, there's just so much in it. And the Bible is honestly um, a beautiful book and a complicated book, and there's a lot in the Bible, and so um, this summer we thought we were just going to, um, you know, work through Genesis, and there's there's a lot to talk about, and we really enjoyed it, and we thought it was really um, helpful and important, and so we've continued it, we're trying to lead up to Christmas, and so where are we now? At judges? I don't know. If I recap the whole thing, I think um, we wouldn't have a whole lot more time, but um, my dad is talking about the book of Judges today. I wasn't here last week, I don't think. So You were here, you I was, didn't know it. I didn't know I was here. You just got off a tour. I was here, I didn't know it. Um, <laughs> talked about Joshua last week, talking about the book of Judges this week. I'm going to pray, and we're just going to jump in. Uh, Lord, um, bless thank my you. dad. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the good um, things you have to teach us. Um, and we thank you that you love us, and um, thank you that you love us through the things you have to say to us and about us, and I ask, Lord, that you would say those things this morning through um, my dad teaching from the book of Judges, and I ask we'd get your heart and catch um, your vision um, for the stories and the history in this uh, part of the Bible, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, thank you. The book of Judges covers um, between a 410 and 480 year period of the history of, of Israel. And it um, technically begins at the death of Joshua. If you remember, Moses brought the people out of um, Egypt. They had 40 years in the wilderness. And then Moses' assistant Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land. And one of the, um, one of the primary ideas there was that Moses, who represented the law, could, could give Israel an identity through the Ten Commandments, could give them a vision of righteousness, and could help mold a new culture out of essential, essentially pagan, uh, disassociated people. But... The Ten Commandments and the law did not have the power to, and this is the spiritual type, does not have the power to transform a person into someone who can live the kind of life reflected in the Ten Commandments. And so Moses could bring them out of Egypt and out of that sort of disassociated, confused, non-identifiable state he could help form them into a congruent, recognizable nation that had righteousness and holiness as a brand new concept of how to live. But Joshua had to take the people into the promised land, and Joshua and Jesus' name are identical, essentially. And the idea is what the law, the law could show you what was right, but it could not take you into the promised land of your inheritance, which represents living an empowered life 
to where you really become and realize the person you were called to be. Is everybody with me so far? And so what Moses and the law couldn't do, Joshua or Jesus and the power of the Spirit can do if, if we allow him to. And so when Joshua died, basically what happened was the nation went into this almost four-plus century uh, experience. Actually, it was a, I think it was 12 different cycles. And the cycle would go this way. When Joshua died, he'd established an eldership people recognized. And as long as those elders were alive, Israel paid attention to their tenets, to their faith, to the devotion to God. But after they died, they fell into all kind of idolatry and immorality. And as a result, they would become an oppressed people by outside forces or even inside forces that emerged. They would cry out to God, and God would send them someone the Bible calls a judge. See, when we think a judge, we think about a guy sitting on the bench telling people who will or will not go to jail. And they did do some of that, but these judges were actually deliverers or people who inspired Israel to stand up, believe God again, lay hold of their inheritance, and chase out their enemies. Now, of course, in the book of Judges, there was a lot of killing. But that's just a type. Those, you know, the Bible says that um, we wrestle not against people, flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and and powers. We wrestle against um, spiritual darkness that's invisible that influences our minds, our emotion, and our will. Those are the enemies we have to fight if you want to make these parallels. Everybody with me so far? Now, here's the idea. One of the reasons we really do need to study the Bible and read the Bible is because the Bible is essentially the foundational text of Western culture. The Bible, through the Judeo-Christian ethic, gave Western Europe and North America the foundation for, let's put it this way, sort of the best side of our culture. It gave us laws. It gave us concepts of freedom. It gave us concepts of responsibility. It gave us concept of what it was, what it is and what it was to be a righteous person. And so in the Bible stories, we find these moral and ethical um, concepts and ideas that have really established the foundation of our nation. Everybody with me? Now, one of the Psalms says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so what we see in the book of Judges is they're going through this cycle of believing God, trusting God, honoring God, having a relationship with God, and then falling away from that and and doing whatever each individual person thinks is right. But the trouble is, each individual person who thinks they're right are often wrong. And so the very last verse in the book of Judges says this, 
and it describes the general concept in people's minds and hearts that caused basically 12 periods of um, periodic oppression, depression, bondage, and spiritual depravity. Here was the general concept. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everybody good so far? Well, there were 12 different judges. And I would, I would guess three out of the four most famous ones would be Deborah, a woman, Gideon, a scared man, and Samson, a mixed bag of, man, the stuff old Samson did is just incredible. I would sort of like to know a current-day Samson. I think there are probably a lot of them around. But Samson, is, he is just this mystery. A, a little side note. Do you, do you remember, um, you may not remember this. Some of you may not know Bible stories like this, but Samson had incredible strength. Everybody, wave at me if you remember that part of, of Samson. What was the question they kept asking Samson? Now, does anyone ever ask Arnold Schwarzenegger the secret of his strength? It's evident, right? I bet you Samson was a little skinny, suave character. Anyway, that's for another day. I'm not really going to talk that much about Samson today because you can't cover everything we want to cover. But I do want to say this about Deborah, and um, I want to say it in particular for the ladies because she was one, literally one of the most incredible, not women in the Bible, but people in the Bible. Um, she became what they called a mother in Israel, and the children of Israel would come up to her for judgment. She sat in her tent under this palm tree between um, Ramah and Bethel. Now, here's the significant thing about Deborah. After Moses... Only Samuel filled the same combination of offices, which was prophet, judge, and military leader. And so she was a very, very remarkable woman. At one given point, um, Israel was being um, decimated by, I don't know, the military leader's name was Sisera. And Deborah charged a man named Barak to gather the troops and go after this guy. And in almost every single episode in the book of Judges, Israel was vastly outnumbered. But there's this idea that a committed minority can radically change culture and change history if their focus is right and if God's with them. It's incredible. We're going to see something incredible here this morning about the odds and what actually happened. If you believe the Bible, I, I, uh, I do believe the Bible. That has made my life so much simpler just to simply believe the Bible instead of question it. The trouble with questioning the Bible is at a given point, the Bible starts questioning you. It becomes very uncomfortable. Yeah, when the thing you're talking to and reading starts talking to you and starts reading you because it's a living book. It's not like any other book. I don't know if many of you listen to Jordan Peterson. He's... um a clinical psychologist from 
University of Toronto. He's not really a Bible-believing Holy Ghost Christian, but he's a very remarkable man, and he loves truth. And I can watch, I watch him as he studies and teaches the Bible. I, I watch God draw him. You know, the reality and truth of God will pull you right into Jesus if you let it. And one of the things he says, and, and one of the reasons he's studying the Bible is, how did this book last this long? How did this book have so much influence? When kingdoms and cultures have come and gone, when people have tried to burn this thing up, destroy this thing, throw it away, and kill anyone who even owned one, as does still happen this very day, he wants to know what's in there. And the wonderful thing about the Word of God, if you start reading the Word of God, the Word of God is going to start reading you. If you start messing with the Bible, God will start messing with you, and I think that's an awesome thing. So, Deborah was an amazing leader. What she did was she stirred Barak up, and Barak was going to take his army. Now, this was a general. Here's how amazing Deborah was. The general of the army told Deborah, I am not going into battle unless you go in there with me. And Deborah says to him, I'll go with you, but you're not going to get any glory for the battle. And basically what happened was they beat these guys. They had them on the run. Sisera, the head of the uh, armies that were opposed to Israel, fell asleep in a tent, and another woman drove a stake through his temple and killed him. And she got the credit for the victory, which that's a pretty bloody situation. However, it all speaks of spiritual things, don't you know? How would you like to drive a stake through the most, your most serious spiritual enemy? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, I see a little hand. In it. Yeah. How many of you have some significant personal issues you would like to resolve? And the rest of you, one of you, you have to... Uh, resolve is you don't tell the truth when you ask questions in church. So. <laughs> and I had my hand raised. <laughs> oh, me. Okay. I read in a commentary. I love sort of borderline crude things. Anybody else here like that? <laughs> I'm brave enough to still raise my hand, ladies. <laughs> no, this was in a commentary. And it's a true statement. Um, it talked about when Samson killed, was it 600 people with the jawbone of an ass? And there was a play on words in the Hebrew that is translated into the English this way. Samson assailed those who had assailed him. Anyway, moving right along, I, I think you have to appreciate a book where a guy can pick up the jawbone of an ass and beat an army with it. I mean, I think Samson picked up the gates of the city and beat up a big, you know, these guys, just whatever's handy. And really, that's just a picture of God. He'll use whoever's handy. We're going to see that. Um one of the things Jordan Peterson said about the Bible, he said, you have, you have, if you read the book, there's no way you can't be hopeful because in almost every circumstance, God uses these terribly flawed people and they, he doesn't seem to really reject them. He seems to keep using them, even when they do the same stupid things. 
even when the same stupid things run through generations. For instance, Abraham twice told people his wife was his sister, which put her in real tight spot, but saved his neck. And then his son did the same thing. They didn't do it once, they did it twice, both of them. Crazy. And there are patriarchs. They're the heroes. That's Abraham and Isaac. Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob, 12 tribes. Jesus came out of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah. And so you should be very hopeful this morning. You, you may be a real mess of a person. Well, I have a message for you. Mess, message. Jawbone of an ass, ass sailed. So all this somehow flowing together this morning. No, God has no intention of doing two things, forsaking you or leaving you the way you are. Because he's upset about both those things, about you ever having been forsaken or of you staying the way you are. How many people want to stay the way you are? Andy scratched his head. I think he was going for the hand raise. They realized, well, <laughs> no, no, no. No, we all, we, we all have historical evidence that we can be filled with hope. Read this book, Historical Evidence. We have historical evidence that a committed minority can change an entire culture. That's what this book tells us because that's how great God is. And so what I want us to do um, this morning is I want us to look at um, Gideon. And so what, uh, what I would like for us to do is read together. Um, we're going to read about uh, six verses about Gideon. And for those of you who are new here today, when we read it together, words come out of your mouth. That's, that's what I'm after. And, and one reason is not just to try to be comical there, but when you hear something, it has one influence. When you read something, it multiplies the influence. When you actually say it, it increases it again. And so I think it's so important. A major aspect of spiritual life is believing and speaking. Matter of fact, there's no other way to get truly saved, to have a born-again experience, to go from death unto life without believing the gospel, but the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so um, let's do this. Why, why don't, let's just stand up. We're just going to read through these, and then uh, I want to make some comments about them. I think it will be encouraging. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Let's read that last part, the Lord. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now at this point, Gideon did not know this was an angel. He thought it was a man. And the way you know that's true is, in a moment, he calls this angel Lord again, but it's a completely different word. The first word, Lord, is how you speak to a, a person. The second word, Lord, is how you speak to God. 
And so at this point, this guy just shows up and starts encouraging Gideon. Okay? Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord. Or he could have been said, Oh, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Now, to give a little concept here, the Midianites, every harvest season, would come into Israel like a swarm of locusts and steal their harvest. They wouldn't just steal their harvest. They took all their weapons, and they took all their implements for agriculture. And the army was 120,000 strong. So that's what they were facing. All right. So he said to him, Oh, my Lord. How can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Okay, you can be seated. I wanted us to um, take a look at this sort of verse by verse. There's so much that happens here, and and even in verses after this about the deliverance, about the victory Israel um, had through Gideon's leadership. But one of the one of the first things we see is how afraid Gideon is. How many of you deal with fear? Yeah, I think I think a lot of us do. But Gideon is threshing wheat, and it says he was threshing wheat in the wine press. Now, the way they would thresh wheat was they would find a hill or a high place, and they would beat the wheat, or they would grind the wheat with an ox and some kind of an implement, and then they would throw both of them up in the air, and the wind would blow the shaft away, and the wheat would remain, and that's how they would uh, that's how they would harvest wheat. But Gideon was threshing wheat in a low place, in an enclosed place, and in a hidden place, because he was afraid to do it publicly, because he knew his enemies would come steal his food, and if he didn't have food, he couldn't eat. So he's really trying to protect his family. That's what it says in order to hide it from the from the Midianites. And one one of the things you see here, I like this, it's when the angel appears to him, he sat down. And, you know, you can read the Bible on different levels. That can just be a fact that means nothing to you, or you can realize that's a picture of heaven's disposition. The angel wasn't wringing his hands. The angel wasn't sweating profusely. 
he was at peace. You see, and that's a picture of the kingdom of God. Really, that's a picture of who God has called us to be, that no matter what we're going through, we don't have to be afraid. If we know God well enough, we can always be at rest. But none of us really know him that well yet, but we can. You hear what I'm saying? We have that possibility. We have that hope. You know, I like the idea that um, it doesn't matter what kind of trouble we're in if trouble's not inside our hearts. You know what I'm saying? If you're not troubled and you're in trouble, you're really not in that big of, what's the deal? Because to me, at the end of the day, it's really how you feel that makes the difference. People, people make fun of, um, oh, well, that was just an emotional experience. Well, tell me what's not. Emotions are important. I think the better we can control our emotions, manage our emotions, and through our belief process have the kind of positive emotions, we can be remarkable people in very difficult situations that can help other people who don't have a handle on that. And that's really what we're called to. We're called to be stable, peaceful, joyful, faith-filled, skilled people for whoever we run into that needs that kind of help. Now, so the angel comes and he sits down under the terebinth tree. And then the angel begins to speak um, to Gideon, and he says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, that's a very bizarre thing for the angel to say, particularly by the way that Gideon looked, and particularly by how difficult his situation was. So you have to wonder, why would the angel talk that way to a frightened man who did not believe or see that God was with him? Do you see how remarkable this is? Right here in the history of Israel, we find a scared guy hiding what he's got for fear of his enemies, and yet an angel, heaven, the essence of reality. Um, the idea here is um, the place where the highest, most permanent, most significant truth comes from looks at this scared man and says to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. What, what's the idea behind that? How, how, why, what in the world, right? What in the world? Well, one idea One idea is that Gideon did not see himself the way God saw him. Do you know, now this is a little interesting. Do you know, how many of you have that conversation that goes on inside? Has it ever struck you? Do you ever wonder who, that there, there's, Two entities in there is the one speaking and the one listening. Has that ever struck you as odd? 
You see, people listen to themselves instead of speaking to themselves the truth God gives them that counteracts all the craziness almost everybody walks around listening to. And so maybe heaven sees you differently than you see yourself. That's one idea. That's worth thinking about, right? Now, maybe we need to make room for God to contradict us. I'm going to say this, much of our trouble in life comes because we don't see from God's perspective. Here's what happens, and this happens in a lot of different ways in a lot of different arenas. You think God's mad at you, so you go off and do something stupid, and he wasn't mad at all. You're mad at him for an attitude he never had, and then you go something stupid and you justify it. And the whole time, he never felt that way at all. That's that craziness that goes, I don't know where, do you, anybody, John Mark's talking about consciousness this morning. He's talking about what is it to be you. And the truth is, we understand very little about human consciousness. But here's what we can understand. God can see us as something much better and greater than we see ourselves. And at the end of the day, we have to conclude he knows what he's talking about. He's looking for someone to agree with him. You have this old idea I heard years ago. There's an election about who you are and three people vote, God, you, and the devil. And you turn the election. Who you agree with determines your eternal destiny, who you become, who you are, how you fulfill your destiny, what you do for people, what you experience in life. It's up to God, but the interesting thing is it's up to God in that he leaves a lot of it up to us to connect with him. Very little in the Christian life is gravity. Anytime you jump off a building, you're going down. It's automatic. But much of what goes on in our relationship with God is relationally defined. It's because of your response to God. That's right. Human response ability is important. But response is something that comes as a result of something that's been initiated. And see, God's the great initiator. It, it, it troubles the Lord to see people die prematurely. Do people die prematurely? Yes. We're in a fallen situation. Listen, we've been born into a war zone. And it bothers God when people don't make it. It bothers God when people have been duped or lied to or bought into philosophies that are destructive. And, and honestly, people are deconstructing the church, you know, deconstructing Christianity. But there's another perspective. What would the world be like even without bad Christianity? Come on. We have, we have, we have to have a realistic concept 
we, we have to understand God is for us. And he's been for every other generation that messed it up. And we can't look at the generations that messed it up. They're not our marker. They're not our standard. Our standard is the person of Jesus. Bill Johnson said he's perfect theology. If you want an accurate viewpoint of God, you will not find an accurate one in the Old Testament. But even the so-called Old Testament judgmental God had room for guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the 12 children that sold Joseph into slavery and Abraham lied and all of those different people. Even that old sorry God had room for them. And of course, I don't mean that. But if you want to know who God is really like, Jesus Christ is the express image of the Father. He is, he is the exact duplicate. You, if God the Father and Jesus stood side by side in a sense, you would not know who was who. They're identical twins by nature by activity, by behavior. That's powerful. That's who Jesus is. Now, the angel didn't relate to Gideon based on his experience or his current condition. Now, here's another idea. The angel says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. What if you mighty man of valor was not descriptive? Well, what do you mean? What if the angel wasn't describing Gideon? What's the idea? What if what he was saying to Gideon was a creative word that would release the power of the creativity of God? that would turn a weak man into a powerful man to the degree that he received what God was saying. And by faith, you see, the word of God is like jello, a friend of mine used to say. It It releases its goodness whenever it's received by a warm, believing heart. See, that's what the word of God is. It's like congealed spirit. All the potencies in there but it has to be released by the embracing of it, the believing of it, and the receiving of it. That's a very, that's a very powerful and a very accurate viewpoint of how life's transformed. A guy named Jim Durkin back during the uh, Jesus movement used to go get these burned out hippies and he bought a, he bought a little farm in uh, Northern California somewhere and he would get, he'd get these burned out, drugged out, LSD messed up hippies and he would give them a hoe and he'd give them a plot of ground and he would give them Bible verses to quote. And that crowd of burned out hippies before it was over established over 200 churches throughout the world because the power of the word of God expressed and released itself as they believed and said what God said was true. And it's a very important idea we can't go by. You, ladies and gentlemen, each one of you are mighty. You are powerful. You have, if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells inside of you, that presence, that power, that spirit will make you alive. That's what Paul says in the New Testament. 
a creative, not descriptive word. God didn't look at chaos in Genesis 1 and say, look at the chaos. What did he say? Let there be. And chaos had enough sense to yield. Let there be light, and there was light. Let God be true, and every man a liar. The angel of the Lord comes to Mary and says, you're, you, you basically, you're going to be impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And what's going to be born from you is going to be the Messiah. You know what her response was? I don't get it. How's that going to work? When's that going to happen? Where will I be? Will anybody notice? Should, what, is it going to hurt? No, 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 no. She said, let that be unto me according to your word. And so we need to have a high priority on the word, but we need to have a high priority not just on like isolated scriptures that give us different areas of help, but in these Bible stories because they're, they're so potent. Now, one of the things we see in these next verses is, is lots of times God doesn't answer our questions. How many of you figured that out? Lord, oh, really he's saying in verse 13, Oh, my Lord, oh, sir, if God is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are his miracles? Didn't the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now he's forsaken us and delivers us in the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord ignores him. If the Lord ignores us, it's for our benefit. And so the Lord simply says to him, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? You see, one of the things you're going to have to realize to really walk with the Lord, he's going to mess your mind up. You, What do you mean, haven't you sent? What? Go in this might. What might? I'm whacking wheat in a wine press, scared half to death. And you say, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? That's very powerful because look what it does. That opens the door to people like us, doesn't it? In verses 15 and 16, Gideon begins to give God all his credentials. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. You think they're bad. I'm the least in that weak clan. And and the Lord just ignores him. He says, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Now, here's one thing I think we need to recognize. God was with Gideon when he had no sensory or um, circumstantial evidence. How many of you have been through that? You didn't feel like he was with you. It didn't look like he was with you. Well, that's listen, I think that's a place everybody at some point in their Christian lives are going to come to. And that's when you need to make hard, character-based decisions. Job said at one point, though the Lord slay me, yet I'll trust in him. There's a time for that. There's a time where you just, you just tie yourself to the mast. You're in. You just give yourself to God. You quit listening to your confusion. You just make a choice. You make a decision. I think about Moses. Moses 
the Lord told Moses, um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go save two million people from their taskmasters upon uh, whose economy is built upon them not letting any of them go. And Moses says, well, how am I going to know you're really telling me to do this? And the Lord says, okay, here's the sign that I'm telling you. After you've done it, I'm going to meet with you over here on this mountain. You see, we have to factor into the equation that God is really like that. Many times you know what you're supposed to do, but you're afraid to do it, and so you're trying to get God to confirm to you that you should do it. Now, here's the crazy thing in Gideon's life. God gave Gideon two fleeces, a dream, and a miraculous encounter to get him to go do what God had called him to do. Now, when I say two fleeces, what do you mean? Well, Gideon, Gideon at one point, He says, um, if you're going to save Israel by my hand, as you've said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece only and it's dry on the ground, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand. And so he lays out, um, I guess it's a lambskin, a fleece. And he says, if you've really told me to do this, now this is a crazy thing. He's talking, actually, you know, the, cra- the crazy thing is before this happened, he figured out the man was an angel and wanted the angel to stay for lunch. And so he goes and kills a meal for the angel. And Gideon says to this angel, I want you to show me a sign. This is crazy. Verse 17, I want you to show me a sign that it's you who are talking to me. And so the angel says, okay. Gideon goes off, fixes lunch, and the angel says, well, put the, put the lunch on that rock. And then the angel touches the rock with his staff, and, and the food blows up in the fiery blast, and the angel disappears. And so it says, now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. I don't think anyone in this room's faith is as weak as Gideon's faith. (laughs) Right? But that's not enough for him to obey yet. So the Lord says, well, go tear down the altar of Baal. So he goes off and he tears down the altar of Baal in the middle of the night. Then people get mad at him. Um, because uh, they were taking Baal's offense. And Gideon basically said, listen, you idiots, Baal's big enough to take care of himself if he's real. And they all agreed. And then the Bible says the Spirit of God came upon Gideon, and he blows his trumpet. And at a given point, 32,000 Israeli soldiers show up. But Gideon's still not confident enough to go through with this. So he says the whole thing about the fleece. I'm going to put out a fleece. If the fleece is wet and the ground's dry, I know you'll do what you said you'll do. You'll save Israel. So the Lord does it. And then Gideon says, don't be angry with me 
But let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And so the Lord did that. Now, here's a remarkable idea. God is a negotiator. I've heard people say you should never, you know, argue with God. I think maybe you should. I mean, that's what the story shows us. Particularly when he's asking you to do something beyond your vision for who you are and what you can do. I think you need to work through this. Um, So Gideon calls all of the people to come fight the Midianites, and 32,000 people show up. And in verse chapter 7, the Lord tells Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, that is not the natural way to think. There are 120,000 in this enemy army. You only come up with 32,000. And so the Lord tells Gideon, there are too many of you. When I bring this victory, you're going to think you did it. And so Gideon says, well, what do you want me to do? He says, well, um, go down to the water and I'll give them a test. See how they drink water. And some of them, I guess, got down on their hands and knees and slurped it up, and others cupped it up in their hands. And I'm hard to figure this out, but one of those two crowds, he said the ones that lapped it like a dog, he said, "Uh, tell, tell them to go away. Another time, the Lord said to Gideon, you really have too many people. Here's what I want you to do. Go to all 32,000 people. Say, if any of you are scared, any of you are afraid, go home. 22,000 people left. Gideon didn't leave. He was still afraid, you can tell, but 22,000 people left. Then he did that thing, got him all, all the way down to 300 men. And so then the Lord initiates this battle plan. But first he says to Gideon, Gideon, I have a feeling you're still not that confident. Let me tell you what to do. If you're not confident I'm going to do this, sneak over there to the enemy and eavesdrop on what they're saying. And so Gideon and a guy, the two of them go over there, and they ease up, I guess, next to some guy's tent. And this guy in the tent has this dream which makes no sense to me whatsoever. Something about a barley loaf rolling down a hill and knocking their tent over. But their conclusion is this, and they say this in in panic. This is none other than Gideon and the sword of the Lord. And Gideon says, yes, I know it. We can get them. And so he says, Lord, how are we going to do this? And the Lord says, well, here's what I want you to do. Get every, there are 300 of you. 
get a trumpet and get a torch and light the torch. And, of course, they have swords, but they have a trumpet in one hand and a torch in the other. And he says, here's what I want you to do. Run down to those 120,000 soldiers, all 300 of you, and shout, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And so they run down and that's what they do. And the Bible tells us this is what happens. That whole army began to turn on each other and kill each other. And then they all ran off and they chased them down and found about 15,000 of them that were left and they destroyed their enemies. Now, historians say this was probably the second greatest military victory in the whole history of Israel. But there's so many awesome parallels there. God, listen, your excuse for how weak you are does not excuse you from God's desire to use you. It may be the very reason he picked you. So that when he does something wonderful, you'll know it was the Lord. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Um, I think it's very encouraging to see how afraid Gideon was and how God continued to bring him through step by step by step. John Mark mentioned earlier um, this thing about uh, one of the ways to get your life straight, you clean up your room. See, here's one of the ideas that I think we need to realize. If we're going to be transformed, we just need to start taking steps. And so you can see that with Gideon. Every step of the way, he gained ground. He gained confidence. Um, I like this idea. God doesn't forsake weak and perfect doubting people. How many of you are happy about that? God's willing to invest in us. So, every man did that which was right in his own eyes, and it worked horribly. You see, one of the things our nation really needs is a return to a true devotion to ethics. You know, what were we thinking, the love revolution? You know, I was a hippie during all that. You know, the love revolution has come to full manifestation in Hollywood where player after player, person after person, are guilty of the terrible way they've treated women. And now, but see, that's permeated our society. And see, I think one of the real truths is you self-destruct. God doesn't have to send enemies. You self-destruct when you start living the way you want to live and you have no constraints, you have no concepts of holiness or righteousness. And, and how could it be any other way than, than the sexual depravity of these, the raping and, and the, um, the things these guys have done 
to women. How could it be any other way when you see what Hollywood has been producing? Actually, I heard this the other day. Pornography earns more money than the NFL, the NBA, and professional, professional baseball combined. And every man in this room, me included, know how serious sexual temptation is. Don and I were talking in the book of Revelation. It says this. It says there was a great dragon, and this dragon spewed forth a flood to kill the man-child. I want to tell you what I believe that flood. It's a flood of filth. It's a flood of pornography. It's a flood of sexual immorality. It's the kind of flood that will absolutely steal your soul. And when I say your soul, I mean the way you think, the way you feel, what your heart condition is, not just some ethereal vapor that flees when you die. No, there is a serious attack on our nation and the world through the corruption that comes with that kind of lust. And when you live a life where you excuse that or when you glorify and magnify so-called freedom, you, you are investing in the destruction of, let me tell you, you are investing in the destruction of your children's future. You really are. You see, to me, society seems to be held together by a very weak moral strata right now. And I believe this. I believe this. I want to say I believe it with all my heart, but I don't yet believe it with all my heart, but I believe it with part of my heart that in America we're going to have another great awakening. The Bible says for judgment must first begin. Say first begin. First begin at the household of God. And then it says, but what will happen to the rest of these people if we're scarcely saved? And here's the point. Don't you remember how the media loved to condemn any preacher, any Christian, any public person who's supposed to be standing for righteousness and spread it everywhere and laugh. Well, I'll tell you what happened. Judgment began first at the household of God. And now, after 20 or 25 or 30 years, after the seeds of this sexual immorality and depravity have come to full fruition, people in CBS and people at NPR and people in Hollywood and people in the tech world are all being uncovered themselves because this kind of judgment is really, it's a justice orientation. It's not just a condemnation. It's, it's God saying, please come to your senses. Please take personal responsibility for your behavior and I will transform you and I'll transform your family and I'll transform your nation for I am with you. I am not against you. I have not turned my back on you.
How many of you are glad God forgives sin? Amen. Amen. Lord, here we are. Um, Lord, we ask that your blood would flow. Father, we take responsibility for who we are. Lord, like Andy was singing, Lord, it's time again for an impartation of your spirit to touch lives. Father, we ask um, that we would be convinced of your goodness, that we would cast all of our unrighteousness, all of our cares, all of our wickedness, all of our sin, whatever might be encroaching upon us or that we haven't dealt with. We cast all these to you, and we know what the Bible says. If we confess our faults, you're faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we ask, we can't obey Ten Commandments on our own, but your Holy Ghost can do something in us. Lord, visit our nation again. Lord, visit us here at Queen City Church. Lord, visit our city. Cause the power of your presence to come in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody okay? I think the truth is, if you hear what I'm saying, you can leave happy. I was sharing with the worship team this morning. I was, I had been reading in Second Peter this morning, and I came across this really interesting verse. But uh, the Apostle Peter is he's he's warning the believers that he's writing to 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 beware of of all of these many other voices that are going to contend for our hearts and our minds. And I thought this was very interesting. He, de- he describes these false teachers or these people that are speaking in an opposite direction of what the Lord would speak. He says this, they promise you freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. This is a really interesting thing that's said next. It says, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And, um, you know, Bob Dylan said it this way, you've got to serve somebody. And the interesting thing about the, the generation that we are a part of is interesting because most of us are walking around in the illusion that the only person that we're really well, that, that we're not serving a false god or that we're not serving some, something else, but that we're, we're the one with the clear thought and we're the one with the clear thinking. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've been in this long enough to know when a, when a preacher starts preaching that way, the way to think about it is not, oh, somebody else needs to hear that right now. I have to think about it. 
oh, I think the Lord might be trying to speak to me. And um, I, I just want to I want to go ahead and invite the ministry team forward. I, I have a feeling that um, some folks will want to receive prayer today. So if we can get the ministry team up up front here, um, why don't we just all stand together? And um, you know, I, honestly, I like it when the Lord rebukes me. It's that's that's how I know I'm a son. You know, no, really, that's how the Lord directs us. That's how he keeps us safe. That, that's how he keeps us growing in, in righteousness. And I'm just really thankful when he speaks to us in a way that's bringing adjustment and bringing us back onto a path of fruitfulness. I love that scripture where John the Baptist, his, he says it this way, um, repent, and then the people say, well, what should we do to repent? And he said, bear fruit worthy of repentance. He's basically saying, change your ways. The tax collectors say, what should we do? And he says, well, go make amends. You know, so there really is actual real change that we can make in our own individual lives, isn't there? So, and I'm just, I'm glad that the Lord's helping us with that. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word today that's gone forth. Lord, I thank you that you have penetrated our hearts today with your word. That you're leading us into your kingdom further and further. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your spirit that's going with us. And we we just, we turn our hearts to you, Lord. We want to repent. We want to repent where there's been things that we've done that have been bad. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how it is. Sometimes we do bad things. And Lord, we need to say that stuff out loud to you and to each other. Because the word says when we confess our sins to one another, we will be healed. It's really that easy. Father, we just thank you for grace and truth today in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. If you need prayer today, just come on, come on forward. The rest of you kiss somebody, hug somebody, give somebody a hug, invite somebody to lunch.